Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, the Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, the Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, the Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public. On appointment-only basis, she offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a Cancer Diagnosis, Adaptogens for Long Life, and Abundantly Well Companion Course. WiseWomanSchool.com. You can also just go to her website, SusanWeed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Rebecca. Hi, Susan. How are you this evening? I'm doing pretty well out here in this balmy January weather that we are having. It's uh, you know it's very difficult when you heat with wood to um, be 
in temperatures that are so hot. It's been in the 40s during the day. Yeah, yeah, we still heat heat with wood here too, and oftentimes it's it's warm, but we like our house pretty warm. So, <laughs> I mean, we're like going through more kindling than we have in in decades, because we're making a new fire can... almost every day. We're just letting it go out at night because it's so warm. Mhm. Uh huh. Yeah, but we do. Yeah. <laughs> and I got that information that you wanted. It's the Peyote Way Church. And I have a phone number yes. for them. And they're celebrating I did, 41 I, I years did of both years. Did you find them too? I did, yeah. And I actually invited her to come on the show. We haven't uh, scheduled a date yet, but um, oh, she'll be on the wonderful. show. Oh, yeah. great. Okay. Wow. If I looked through, you I said, all right, I know I, must have, know I must have picked something up from them when I was at their table. Sure enough, mm-hmm. here's a red flyer and a green flyer and a blue flyer. Very pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interestingly <sighs> enough, a woman had ordered some hypericum oil from me the next uh, day, I think, after that, after we had spoke about that last week, to bring into uh, and to give as gifts during the peyote ceremony. And so, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I know, <sighs> so... And then I saw this other beautiful piece of artwork just uh, by this man, Timothy White, that uh, that is a ceremonial, like a depiction of the ceremonial peyote. And, um, and it was just, uh, yeah, it's just everywhere right now. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and it's funny how they're, you know, they're buttons and they pop up and, and yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. But we'll see what happens there. And, of course, Abundantly Well continues to uh, be widely praised and people mm-hmm. you know, getting in touch with us and saying, I got my copy, now I want three more for all my friends and my family. And just, you know, just to say that mainstream medicine is really appreciating the kinds of things that I'm saying. Right. Extensive treatment, says an article in Time magazine this week. Extensive treatment feels like a promise that doctors have done everything. But that perceived security comes at a very high price. A 5,000-person trial last year showed that for patients with chronic but stable heart disease, surgical procedures such as stenting and bypass did not reduce the risk of heart attack or death more than lifestyle intervention and taking medication. Hmm. This this study upended assumptions about cardiac care, and this is an article by Jamie Ducharme from Time magazine, and um, the doctors are saying, we we actually, you know, say that we're practicing evidence-based medicine, but we're not. We really have to, you know, not just go with our intuition. In fact, across the medical field, doctors are reconsidering many surgeries are medically necessary and life-saving, but increasingly evidence suggests that invasive care is not the best choice, which is exactly the premise of Abundantly Well, isn't it? Yes, we Mm -hmm. may need medicine, we may need step six, but it's at the end of the book. A 2016 paper found that men who actively monitored their early-stage prostate cancer were no more likely to die over the next 10 years than those who opted for surgery and radiation. And what this article doesn't say is, however, they were incredibly unlikely to have erectile difficulties or incontinence, whereas the men who get those procedures 
a lot of them have those problems. Right? Studies have found that C-sections are not only unnecessary, but potentially risky. Hmm. Results from disparate corners of the medical field point to a need to change our approach. Wow. A 2010 Institute of Medicine report estimated that over-treatment costs $210 billion a year. In a 2017 survey, U.S. doctors said that more than a quarter of the tests on the medical care that they suggested was entirely unnecessary. Hmm. Why would they suggest it? Fear of malpractice suits, patient requests, and patient pressure. Is what the doctors say and respondents say that doctors, 70% of respondents say doctors do these things because they profit from them. And over-treatment yeah. gets over-treatment. In a 2019 survey just done a couple of months ago, 94% of 400 internists say that they have personally seen a cascade of care where an ultimately frivolous chain of interventions is triggered by screening. An assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School says this waste time and money leads to unnecessary pain and stress. They talk about the organization choosingwisely.org. Right? Things will change, but they change slowly. We hope that the growing body of evidence on overtreatment will not be seen as a total condemnation, but a call for thoughtful decisions. Patients who decide not to be tested and not to indulge in what I'm calling deep medicine may take comfort in knowing that their health will be better off for it. Um, That's a pretty amazing article to be in a mainstream magazine, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I think that our guest tonight is going to be um, a very interesting person to talk to in line with with all of that, too. Exactly. Dr. Jacqueline Jones, a physician and a sur- and a surgeon. And uh, she has been listed as one of America's top doctors. Actually, there was a kind of a thing in Reader's Digest about how do you get to be a top doctor, and the doctors say they ask your mother. <laughs> <laughs> so she's written a book called Medical Parenting, and she is going to be talking to us about that and about uh, navigating the medical care system with her own children. So, uh, indeed, that is one of the reasons that I thought to read that article to us, because I knew that Dr. Jacqueline Jones is going to be with us at 9 o'clock East Coast time tonight. Well, excellent. And um, there's a woman that uh, has written in a couple times wanting her question answered, her two questions on the email, if you don't mind, um, if we can take that first. Sure. Okay. Um, Okay, here we go. Hi, I have a couple of related questions for Susan. My husband and I are interested in starting to integrate some heart tonics into our lives soon. We are both drinking nourishing infusions and eating a broad-based cooked whole foods diet. I am 
48 and on my menopausal journey. He is 40 but has a history of heart troubles in his family as well as high cholesterol count and his doctor strongly pushed statins. I should say former doctor as he does not see that doctor anymore. He said he will not take statins under any circumstance. Mm. I have two questions. I heard you talk about how you and your sweetie took Hawthorne tincture to strengthen your hearts. I would like to make a Hawthorne tincture for us, but I have read that it can lower blood pressure. We both already tend towards blood pressure quite on the lower end of the spectrum, and I am wondering whether Hawthorne tincture is at all a concern in that case. And then question number two, I heard you and your sweetie also took... I want to stop here. I'm going to stop here because it's a really important point, and it's a point that I find myself making over and over and over again. Herbs are not drugs. Herbs are not drugs. They're not drugs in green coats. They don't act like drugs. A drug is a single molecule which has a direction of action. That's what makes it a drug. You take a drug that lowers blood pressure, it is going to lower your blood pressure no matter what. If your blood pressure is already low, it's going to lower it. If your blood pressure is high, it's going to lower it. That's what it does. Herbs don't work that way. Any herb that you use contains hundreds and hundreds of different constituents. So rather than having one constituent with a direction of action, herbs have multiple constituents, and they have a sphere of action. Hawthorne is one of the acknowledged adaptogens. The current definition that we have of adaptogens is an adaptogen is an herb that normalizes functioning. If something is low, it brings it up. If something is high, it brings it down. There is no way on this planet that Hawthorne is going to lower anybody's blood pressure unless they need their blood pressure lowered. Yeah, I, I have low blood pressure, but I still use Hawthorne vinegar like every day on my food, so <laughs> I love it too much. Right, exactly. It, it, in fact, Hawthorne can raise your blood pressure if it's too low. Yeah, I, I think of it as a regular. I'm suggested for elder people who somehow have been talked into taking a drug that causes their blood pressure to go down when they stand up, causing them to fall and hit their head. Mm-hmm. And Hawthorne can be very useful in that situation. So the fact that this woman has read that Hawthorne lowers blood pressure is correct. It can lower blood pressure. It's excellent at lowering blood pressure, but it's not a drug. So it can also raise blood pressure. I know, it's confusing, isn't it? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay, so I think think we've dealt with that question. Let's go to the next one. Is I heard you and your sweetie also took motherwort tincture to strengthen your hearts, but I did not hear any particular amounts or frequency. I'd love your thoughts about amounts and frequency that we might consider for ourselves. I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
in general, tonics are things that we take regularly and rhythmically. When I talk about lifestyle medicine, which is nourishing and tonifying in abundantly well, I talk about adaptogens in the many different ways that we have of using tonics. A tonic can be taken on a daily basis. A tonic can be taken daily for six weeks and then not for the rest of the year. A tonic can be taken once a week. A tonic can be taken three or four times a week. What is your goal? What are you doing? What tonic herb are you working with? What does your body say about it? At the risk of repeating myself, herbs are not drugs. You better be really careful what dose of a drug you take, and you better be really careful how often you take it. Because if you take more of that drug, you could cause yourself some pretty severe harm. Remember, you cannot sell a drug until you establish LD50. That means lethal dose 50% of the animals. If you wish to sell a drug, you have to give your drug to 100 animals until at ever-increasing doses until half of them die. Now, at, which po- at what point do you think half of the animals would die from being given Hawthorne or motherwort? Um, never. <laughs> Correct. Never. They're not drugs. Herbs are not drugs. Drugs can be made from herbs. Herbs can be made to be more drug-like. Tincturing a plant makes it a little more drug-like. Powdering it and tincturing in grain alcohol makes it much more drug-like. Powdering it and putting it in a capsule makes it extremely drug-like. And again, in Abundantly Well, I go through this. I actually have a little chart that shows you how you move from an herb to a drug so that we all start to really understand herbs are not drugs. Certainly, we want to get to know the individual herbs, and they are somewhat different. Over the past few months, I got interested in California poppy, and I was taking some California poppy at night before I went to bed to see if it would cause me to sleep longer or deepen my sleep or do anything like that. And, of course, the bottle says to take a dropper full, so that's what I was taking. But as I started talking to people about California poppy, more and more people said to me, oh, no, this is an herb that works best at very low doses. And so I kicked back. Instead of taking a dropper full, which is about 25 drops, I tried taking five drops, and I got much better effect from it. I have given throughout my career course after course after course about what's the right dose for herbs and herbal medicine. And I will say that at the end of almost every single one of these, I have thought they're probably more confused now than they were before I started. I even have a MP3 called Elements of Herbalism Dosing. And in in one respect, it is the most individual of all of the things that herbalists do. Herbalists who are trained in England are told that the starting dose of an herbal tincture, which is made with dried powdered herbs and grain alcohol, is a teaspoonful. 
Most American herbalists would throw up their, their hands and roll their eyes in distress at thinking of anyone taking a teaspoonful of tincture, right? Yeah, I've seen actually some herbalists in the U.S. that recommend that kind of dosage, actually. So and then we have herbalists like Matthew Woods. We're talking, to, yeah, we're talking about people alive right now who recommend it uh, a teaspoon. And Matthew Woods, his highest dose is three drops. Mm-hmm. He doesn't use any any tincture more than three drops. So, if you're taking a drug, you need to know what the dose is. Otherwise, you can come to harm. If you are taking an herb. Experiment. Listen to your body. What's going on? Do you want to take but, it in the so morning? Think, Do you want to take it at night? Do you want to take a larger dose? What happens if you take a smaller dose? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So opposed to using it for like an acute situation like anxiety or like wanting to build like a capillary bed, like strengthening your heart, like you might want to just, you can use it either way. It can be used in a variety of ways. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly, because herbs aren't drugs. They can be used in many ways. And by using different doses and different rates, then we can get those effects. If you overdose on a drug, as we've said, that's an actual overdose. And if you take the right amount of the drug, but you take it for too long, you can cause damage to your liver or your kidneys, right? Mm-hmm. But that is extremely rare with herbs. Mm-hmm. Do you and personally know anyone who's damaged their liver by taking too much of an herbal remedy? I don't. No. I don't. And people are always, you know, throwing up caution still about about comfrey and because I do, I uh, promote using it and it seems like anytime I like mention it in like a thread or something, people like throw up this big thing about it and it's, yeah, so, um, but that just hasn't been my experience or anybody I know. It's only been like super strengthening and healing for people. So. so again, let's remember that the difference between herbal medicine and folklore, both of which are important is that in folklore, we hear something like, Comfrey's good for you. Nothing wrong mm-hmm. with that statement. True, but it's pretty general. In herbal medicine, we would specify what part of the plant we may we are using. Comfrey leaf mm-hmm. is good for you. We would mm-hmm. specify when we harvest it. Comfrey leaf harvested with the flowering stalk is ex- exceptionally good for you. We would specify a range of doses. We would specify how it's prepared. Comfrey leaf harvested with flowering stalk and dried and made into an herbal infusion, two to four cups, drunk several times a week, can increase strength and flexibility in all connective tissue. Now that's herbal medicine. Comfrey's good for you, that's folklore. Mm-hmm. Comfrey hurts your liver, that's folklore. My friend just had a a descended stomach, like her stomach was like stretched out. And I said, you know, you need to start drinking comfrey infusion. And she was, because she was experiencing all kinds of gas and pain. And uh, within like a week of drinking comfrey, like like three times that week, 
uh, court each time. She was feeling much better, and she um, has continued to drink it every week. And this has only been like a month, and she is totally reporting that she is completely better after like a year of struggling with this. So. And also, just <laughs> by the by, I didn't bring the article with me, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm almost always reading since I read a hundred periodicals a month. And a food periodical I was reading was going on about something I hadn't realized, which is that carrageenan, a common food additive, um, is very distressing to many people's guts, and that people who have irritable bowel or Crohn's disease or um, ulcerative colitis have found vast improvement by getting carrageenan out of their diet. It's often in yogurt. Oh, interesting. So that's Hello, another sneaky. another yeah. thing you might want to mention to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just take a look at those ingredients, and if it's got carrageenan, don't use that product. Carrageenan is cleared for use in organic products, despite mm-hmm. the fact despite the fact that a group of people who had a lot of evidence about its distressing effects actually got the FDA to say they wouldn't clear it, and then that decision was reversed because of the lobbying from the carrageenan industry. Interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not, you know, concerned. For most people, I'm not, you know, having any vendetta against it, but... Since you brought up somebody with a digestive problem, it kind of triggered it in my my mind. Yeah, I will mention it to her. I will see yeah. her tomorrow. So, um, and thank, thank right. you to everybody who's been waiting patiently with your arm raised. That's you. Arm, raise your arm by pressing one. Um, while Rebecca and I uh, answered these questions and talked about these things, I think they're really important. I hope you agree. All right, so we'll go to our first caller, and the first caller is coming from the 845 area code with a 688 prefix. Hi, ladies. Thank you so much for taking my call. Susan, I missed you so much. I've been in the hospital for almost two and a half weeks. Um, I'm the girl with, well, I thought I had shrinking teratomas, but I had to have cut-up teratomas, and you had actually advised me that that was a smart way to go because I, I just wasn't getting any better. And I, I just got out of the hospital yesterday. It was a four-and-a-half-hour surgery, and they found some things I'd, I'd like to talk to you about. Just I'm going to be I, – I have so much I want to say, but I don't want to take up all the time, and I'll just try to get to the point if I can. And unfortunately, I, after listening to you – ladies go on about um, all the medicines. I must have came home with about seven or eight of them, but I do have a really big incision. So I'll just let you know what they found, and maybe you could give me a little bit of advice. Um, I, uh, they, oh, well, I, I, I thought I went to the emergency room because I thought that I was experiencing torsion. I swear it was the next day after we spoke, and I was trying to plan the surgery, get my ducks in a row, and I went to the emergency room, and they said, no, no, you're impacted. That's got nothing to do with torsion. And they didn't bother to take my blood work, and they kept saying they were going to, but in all fairness, they were having a very difficult night. 
um, you know, for many reasons. So they never got around to doing that. And they sent me home with a fleet enema and a suppository and some stool softener, and which I tried to use the fleet enema, which I couldn't get anything in there. Anyway, um, it ended up I was more than impacted. I My bowel uh, actually had to remove part of it because it was all, I guess, there was an obstruction in it. But anyway, so the next day I, I said, I need blood work done. I don't care. I don't have a primary care, but... I just planted myself in one of the corporate medicine joints over here in uh, Boyceville, and I just said, I need I need blood work done, and they finally did it, and I didn't get it back for a week, even though I was calling every single day. Um, but anyway, when, when they got it back or when they decided to finally call me, they said, young lady, you need to get to the hospital immediately. Your platelets and your white blood cells are through the roof. You either have cancer or you have an infection. So I guess they were right about a couple of things. I went back to the emergency room. They said after they did a CT scan, they shipped me right up to Albany Medical Center, which I I do want your opinion on that. I felt like it was the best care I've ever seen in a hospital because I've been in many hospitals with my mother through her illnesses. But anyway, they waited five days, and then they did a, 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 um, a, a hysterectomy. Um, I didn't have the option of keeping my ovaries, even though I fought for that, like we had discussed in the past, because the the teratomas were wrapped around the ovaries, and one of them you couldn't even see. And since I'd had this when I was 30 already, I just said, you know what, I have to let them go. I didn't really want to. I mean, I have your books, and I, I I'm sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. You don't have to apologize to me. Deep medicine means we have to give up things. That's what I, happened I know, and, and, you know, I, was, I said, well, let me keep my other part, you know, my uterus. And he didn't, he, he was, he, I, I, you know what, Susan, it sounds like a, ter- a bad story, but I think that God was really blessing me. The goddesses were with me because I ended up getting the chief of um, oncology and, and gynecology, and the nurses hated his guts. But every one of them said, "Listen, you don't want you don't he don't need to be his boyfriend. You don't need to be your boyfriend. If we were going to get cut, he's the only guy we'd want to do it." So I felt like I was in really good hands, and he wasn't sugarcoating anything. And even before the operation, he said, "I don't think this is cancer. This does this looks like a classic teratoma. That's just it's obstructing the hell out of your colon, and it was pressing on one of my ureters. So they had to put a stint in for that. But anyway." They cut me open four and a half hours later. Um, he said he found a squamous cell ovarian cancer. And it was, and the reason why it's, well, I'm explaining it to you. You know more than me. It was stage two because it was spreading onto part of my bowel. So he said he feels like, he goes, look, I feel like I got it all, but I want you to do um two rounds of chemo, one radiation, and then two more rounds of chemo, which I, I, you know what, I haven't even delved into it yet because I'm just starting to, I just got my appetite back, and I'm so happy that I could have the energy to talk to you. But anyway, any thoughts? I I almost want to see you privately because I I just feel a little bit lost in this. And and you know what, Susan, I'm, I'm not, I feel like I can beat the hell out of this. I really do. I feel so strong, 
even though it was a very hard recovery. And I know that that's important, right? Very important, yes. That you have a good attitude is is incredibly important. Somebody told me that she was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she said to her doctor, well, I'm going to change my diet. And her doctor said, that won't do any good at all. And she looked at the doctor, and she said, you just told me that having a good attitude and taking care of myself was important, and now you're shooting me down the first chance you get. And huh. he backtracks so fast. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. It's That's amazing. So BS, but anyway. So, again, what we all need to understand is that MDs are trained to be as conservative as possible. Here's cancer on this ovary. We are going to take out the uterus because it could have already spread to the uterus and we can't see it. And they did take out the We don't want to have to open her up and do a hysterectomy. We're just going to take it now. And they probably took the omentum, which is the um, covering of the gut as well as part of your gut. And, and as far as the doctor is concerned, he did a great job and he got it all. But just to be sure, he wants you to do chemotherapy and radiation. So let's be very clear about what this doctor is saying. This doctor is saying, I don't think you really need chemotherapy or radiation, but I want you to do it anyhow. Because if you don't, and then your cancer metastasizes, you could be mad at me. So you have to decide. The doctor says, so as far as he knows, he's gotten it all out of your body. It's a teratoma. It doesn't really look, you know, like a, an aggressive cancer to him. It's a squamous cell thing. Squamous and, and cell. Squamous cell. Cancers are not very sensitive to chemotherapy, in fact, although they are sensitive to radiation. And when he says one radiation, he means once. You know what? I, I have to see the oncologist. and when Yeah, because talking, I have never heard of radiation once. It's usually done over and over again, and especially for somebody who's just had surgery on their bowels, there's a very strong chance that you'll wind up with, with a colostomy. I think that what he said was two rounds of chemo, which would be like in a month and a half, and then the radiation, and then the chemotherapy again. Right. And again, what he said first off was that you don't really need it. Now, you might want to be conservative, too. Some people do like to be conservative and say, hey... Why don't we just, you know, cover all of our bases, even if doing the chemotherapy really damages my liver and damages me cognitively, and even if doing the radiation really winds me up in a far worse place with my gut than I was when I started, at least I won't have to worry about cancer. Right. And I have, you know, no problem with anybody who wants to do that. Most people do. They're not generally happy with the results of what they get. Again, we don't have good, hard evidence that doing chemotherapy and radiation will increase your lifespan. Right. So I tend not to be so conservative. I tend to be more of a risk taker. Right. And so to me, risk is acceptable. If the doctor says, I've gotten it all, but I want you to do this anyhow, my response would be, 
I hear you, and I really trust you, and I really trust that you've gotten it all. And so I'm not going to do the chemotherapy and radiation now. We'll hold them in abeyance. You know, Susan, I might have been misleading because I'm a little bit foggy. He said, I think I've got it all. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty certain, and it, it's a rare kind of cancer. It's not the regular ovarian cancer. It's this kind like skin cancer, I guess. Um, so I feel like actually, squamous cancer usually. Yeah, well, it's not really skin cancer, but yeah, it's different than regular ovarian cancer, which doesn't start in the ovaries. Anyhow, it starts in the fallopian tubes. It's kind of misnamed, but. That's okay. I see. So again, nothing nothing that I have said would have changed. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Are you a conservative or are you more of a risk taker? I'm a risk taker, but I got to tell you, two and a half weeks of getting woken up every two hours and and I I don't I I'm 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 I'm, I guess I'm just not in my right mind, and not. And t- excuse me, two and a half weeks of not having my nourishing herbal infusions because I was way too far away for friends to just keep bringing those to me. You know, um, that that I feel like if I had them, I would have felt a lot better. And you know, but I, I, I guess I have to I have to be a little more reflective because I'm supposed to start this chemotherapy in two weeks. You agreed to it. I, I I didn't agree. I, I and I I was told I had to see the oncologist for a consultation, and that I would I didn't really agree to anything. I mean I, I was told that's what I should be doing, and uh, I you know I I was a captive audience I guess, so I didn't really know what to agree Most to or not. Most people want to be told what to do. Most people say, "Oh my gosh, my body's misbehaving. I don't know anything about it. Fix me," and they. Do whatever they're told to do. There's nothing wrong with that. If that's what you prefer is to say, I don't want to have anything to do with my body. You just fix it. And that's not why I called you because that's Ooh. exactly, I mean, I don't know if I'm a big risk taker, but I mean, I We're feel not like. We're talking about a big risk here. I feel like I took, I feel like I took a big risk putting off the surgery as long as I did, trying to heal myself. And and I feel like it just, you know, I, I feel like I, I did myself an injustice because maybe if I removed the teratoma sooner, it wouldn't have impacted my bowel and it wouldn't have... Me, this to... does not count as good attitude. Maybe in yourself to death the, is not okay. Okay, thank you for saying that. Just stop because we could all maybe ourselves to death, can't we? You got it. You got it. You, I, I see it. I'm very clear on it. Thank you. Yes. You did what you did. And things happen the way they happen. And it's not necessarily in our control. And there's nothing wrong with it not necessarily being in our control. And, again, chemotherapy and radiation will always be available to you, Right. It's not like if you say, I'm not going to do chemotherapy in two weeks, that you never have another chance to do chemotherapy, right? Right. And the other thing that I wanted to say was, he said, then after that, we're going to do a PET scan. It's like, well, why not do a PET scan in three months and see what's there? I mean, I guess a PET scan shows if there's... A PET scan is the highest amount of radiation used in any test. I suggest that people avoid PET scans at 
all costs unless there is a really, really strong overriding reason for a PET scan. Okay. Well, you start, Even you a CAT scan. And if you look at Abundantly Well, at the new book, the amount of cancer caused by CAT scans is staggering. Don't even, don't even, uh, believe me, I had three of them in the past week or so. <laughs> you can see. ask for an MRI instead. I tried, and I was hit with, um, you know, I guess they don't want to do that to somebody with Medicaid, but anyway. Um, and, I'm not well, sure what you're saying. You were hit with something. A CAT scan is far more expensive than an MRI usually. Really? Well, that's good. Maybe an MRI is more trouble. Gosh, I wish I was more aggressive about not wanting them, especially when they did one erroneously. But that's a, another story I don't want to waste your time with. But, Susan, I can't thank you enough for giving me the just the knowledge, but more importantly, the the, the knowledge and the strength to just try to I mean, I have the strength. I just need to know where to put the energy. If that, I don't know if that made any so, sense. So I think we have talked about medicinal mushrooms. And I yeah. am very, very strong, a voice for medicinal mushrooms. The studies that I see lead me to believe that they are a number one defense against the cancer metastasizing. And is there one in particular that you believe is the best for that? I like both um, Paul Stamets, right. his um, My Community, which is a blend of mushrooms, and a Real Mushrooms, Five Defenders. They're both excellent products. And especially in using mushrooms to prevent uh, cancer from metastasizing, a blend of mushrooms is better than just a right. single mushroom. Um, the doses generally show increasing response with increasing amount. So mushrooms can be pretty expensive. You have to decide how much you can afford to take. Right. And I know he's got all those those blends at our health food store. And, and I do use a lot of mushrooms in my food, so I can get on that. Excellent. Excellent. There are a wide variety of other herbs that are used to help you come back after surgery. I talk about many of them in my new book, Abundantly Well. There, If you do decide to do radiation, there's a whole section on protecting yourself against the radiation. Okay. Um, it doesn't mean you won't be damaged by it, but you won't be damaged as badly. Right. I know. Right. So, I, again... Myself not you know, what I, what I know works well with most doctors is not to say, no, I don't want to do chemotherapy because that gets them all in a tizzy, but to say, I need more time to think about this. I'm still feeling really weakened from the surgery, and I right. do not want to do it right now. I'm not close to it, but I'm not going to do it yet. That is such a great response because I don't want to alienate them either. Exactly. Exactly. And the truth of the matter is that they really are there for you, and maybe they can shout louder than you, and you give way. But if you don't give way, they can't force you to do anything. They cannot force you to have a CAT scan. They cannot force you to do chemotherapy. They can't do that. You have to agree. 
That's really, that's really, really good to know. Oh, hold on for one second. Mm. Oh, I think we should say green blessings. My God, one of my goddesses just bought me one of my things that I needed. I'm sorry. Wonderful. So I think we should say goodbye and green blessings for this and week. Thank you so much for calling and for keeping us aware of what's going on. And um, call back again anytime you want to. Susan, thank you. Green blessings. And can I get the book fast by having somebody drive up and get it from you, or do I? I don't have a book. It's just me and my farm here. I don't sell books. Oh, I I didn't know. I was only to your farm one time, and it was wonderful. Yeah, but there's no bookstore here. I mean, Mirabai in Woodstock sells it. Oh, they have it. Oh, perfect. Of course they do. I I didn't. uh, Any bookstore you go into should have it, and if they don't, tell them they should. I definitely will. I'll go see Audrey right away. Thank Alrighty. you so much, Susan. Good night. Good night. Good night. Green blessings. Bye. The next color is in the 845 area code. Hi. This is Tatiana. Hi. Hi, Susan. Um, I did listen to your answer to uh, the emails and uh, uh I am taking motherwort and um, the other one for high blood pressure. What's the name of it? Hawthorne. You have high blood pressure. You've been well, diagnosed with high blood you pressure. you know, everything is relative. Uh, yes, I do, but um, it's between 139 and 149, and it didn't change with medication and with nothing. I feel a lot better. Uh, since I'm taking, I think it's because of the tincture. I did I did not take the the heart thing that uh, the doctor gave me a medication that made me drowsy and dizzy, and she said it shouldn't. And <laughs> you know she's telling me it shouldn't, but it does. So I stopped taking it, and the drowsiness disappeared in two days. And uh, I the thing that is mostly uh, changing, and I think it's probably related to the fact that I take only one uh, minimal dose for my blood pressure, uh, something that uh, is amlodipine and doesn't seem to have any side effects. My ex-husband told me that it's a good one, and he's right. But uh, it did not affect my blood pressure. My blood pressure is like that. If I sleep... It's normal. If I get up and move around, it's 139. If I get a little excited, it's 149. If I move around and I can't really run, but like getting (laughs) high gear, yeah, if I go to the doctor, it's 167. (laughs) (laughs) They call it white coat hypertension. Yeah, it's yeah. It varies with the situation, which is very much like me, because I'm extremely impressible by anything, sound, touch, anything in the sensorial and invisible field, and what other people feel and where they hurt and all that. Anyway, what I wanted to ask you is, I'm taking motherwort twice a day, two full drops, and uh, the Hawthorne also the same, but at different times. Um, I I think since I started walking for three weeks, I feel a lot better, 
but nothing changed in in my blood pressure. Maybe it was like that. No, it wasn't like that because they checked it now and then. I would go to the doctor once in in 10 years, and my blood pressure was always fine. So it didn't change. So I don't feel like I'm very sick because of that. I suffer more from the shingle pain than from my heart. But the doctor said after the echo EKG that the left side of my heart is uh, not functioning properly. And that's the medication that she gave me that made me sick. And I did take it for two weeks. I said, you know, I have to try at least before I say no. And it made me feel not good, and I stopped taking it. And that's my story. (laughs) All right. Well, I think you're doing some really good things for yourself by taking the Hawthorne and the Motherwort. Mm -hmm. They will both help make your heart stronger. Mm-hmm. And I think that what's really going on here is something that many of us experience and in various ways, especially with scientific medicine. Remember that scientific medicine measures and fixes. So what has happened is your blood pressure has been measured, and it didn't measure up. So it needs to be fixed. I don't want to take more of what I. But wait, wait a second. We have to ask ourselves, what was by what standard was it measured? What am I supposed to measure up to? So, are all human beings exactly alike that we have one standard for blood pressure? Aggressive modern medicine, in the thrall of drug companies does in fact believe that every human being, no matter what their age, should have basically the same blood pressure. Yeah, they want to sell more medication. And (laughs) it does not sound to me like this is necessarily what's healthy for you. You see, density does not take health into consideration and you're asking me about being healthy. Yeah, exactly. Or as an MD said to me, well, I don't know anything about being healthy. I didn't study health. I studied disease. <laughs> right, right. That's I mean, right. it was really, I, like, I, my mouth dropped open because I thought, I am hearing the honest truth here. <laughs> right. Right? It's like last week where a woman went to a cardiologist for preventative medicine, and to him, preventative medicine is statins. Not exercise and eating well. And again, this is part of the point of Abundantly Well, that we look at these seven medicines and we say, all right, hey, my blood pressure is high. What am I doing in serenity medicine? Serenity medicine, meditation especially, has been shown to lower blood pressure very dependably and increase the health of people with heart problems. And I started the show by reading about a study that showed that even people with heart disease, this is even people who've already had a heart attack, do not benefit from aggressive procedures. They do better by involving themselves in lifestyle medicine. Yeah, I read that. I, I get the Times, uh, the Time magazine, and yeah. uh, 
Yes, so I think that this is what you are doing, is that you're saying, hey, you know what? These drugs are not really making me healthy. They might be fixing me where I don't measure up, but really? In what way should I measure up? Is this the right measure that I'm being measured by that I should measure up to? Or maybe your blood pressure is just a little bit higher. And maybe the things that you are already doing, the motherwort and the hawthorn and your your good exercise and your good eating, that those things are going to create what you want, which is health, whether or not they change the numbers. Right. My question to you is I want to stop taking the medication. And uh, I, I mean, I know I have to make the decision, but I feel like I am okay just the way I am. And it took four months that it, the medication did not have any effect on me. I'm very stubborn, and I don't want to take more, and I want very much not to take it. No one can make any person take any medication if you don't want to take it. That's all that's needed is for you to not want to take it. And if the doctor says, well, if you don't take this medication, you could die, that's certainly true. But you know what? Life yeah, I'll die anyway. I'm is a-, a terminal exercise. We are all going to die anyhow, aren't we? <laughs> you know, what is this like relentless? Uh, you know, if you do that, you could die. Yes, I could die. It's true. You know, am I taking a really enormous risk here, I ask myself? I've already established that I am a risk taker. All right. But that doesn't mean that I am going to take risks that look like they would have lethal consequences. Well, you know, I forgot to tell you, I do take a baby aspirin every other day, only three three a week. Uh, okay. And probably no, probably no problem, but certainly no benefit. <laughs> if it's no benefit, I don't want to take it, for God's sake. Well, then don't take it. I mean, the whole idea of using aspirin to help prevent stroke and heart attack has been totally debunked. It doesn't work. More people die from side effects from the aspirin than would have died from heart disease. Yeah, well, yeah, well, she she saw that. Now, when you're only taking a baby aspirin and you're only taking it a few times a week, so as I said, you're probably not causing any real harm there. It's probably not a big big deal. And if you feel comfortable and it makes you feel safer, then go ahead. But if you don't want to take it, then stop. Yeah. Well, drugs are not preventative medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are seven medicines. The first four are foundation medicines. They build health. And there's a gap. And then the last three, alternative medicine, pharmaceutical medicine, and deep medicine, can save our lives, but they will never make us healthy. Well, everybody who is taking this uh, blood pressure thing, they tell me, this is not negotiable. You want to get a stroke? You want? I say, yeah, I don't want to get a stroke. But I'm not sure that taking the medicine is going to, to do that for me. Yeah. No, and they aren't either. Yeah. But that is that is the party line. 
it certainly is the party line that if you don't do what they say, you'll die. Yeah. I said I don't care dying, but, you know, I don't want to die. Oh, and I say, wow, would you buy a new car based on that premise? And somebody says, if you don't buy this car, you'll die. Would you buy it? (laughs) We would never act that way in any other. And I think this is what people forget. You are purchasing health care services just like you're purchasing a car. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I can go to my general doctor to do an EKG once in six months and to tell me that it's the same. I don't know. It's like I'm losing completely any way of checking in, but I feel a lot better. And for me, feeling better is just so awesome, moving, because I didn't move with the shingle pain for the longest time. I hear you. I was afraid I will not... I want to argue with you about your losing your ways to check in. As I suggested, serenity medicine, a meditation especially, has been shown to both lower blood pressure and increase longevity. And it's a perfect way to check in with your body and find out what's happening. Mm-hmm. You, like many modern humans, don't believe yourself and prefer to believe a machine. No, I don't believe a machine. I believe how I Well, then why would you say to me I've lost my ways of checking in when you have your own way of checking in, which is your body, you're living in it? You're right. You're right. I think it's because all the people around think that I'm nuts for feeling that way, Uh, that, you know, that this is, I can't negotiate it, that I have to take this pill. And I want very much to get off it. And my question was, do I need to take a little more of what I'm taking, or just find the way I do it twice a week? Find the way you're doing it twice a day, yes? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Fine, no problem. That's that's sufficient. I don't have to. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That's great. I feel Mm -hmm. Motherwort and Hawthorne, a dropper full each twice a day is a good amount. Yeah. No problem there at all. And I feel really good, and I am grateful to Glad you. that you feel really good, and I'm so glad that the shingles pain has remissed enough to allow you to be more active because we know that that's a really important part of it, too. Yes, I go I go to the gym every day, and I don't have a car. Can you believe that miracle? Oh, wonderful. And I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Dean Ornish. I am not, you know, without information recommending him, but I will say that the man proved conclusively that you don't need drugs to prevent stroke and heart attack. That's right, but I can't eat without salt, and I am a good, I love, I am a gourmet eater. Not saying you have to eat without salt. Yeah, yeah, I I use Himalayan salt. In fact. I eat, yeah. About 10% of the U.S. population is salt-sensitive in terms of blood pressure. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think I'm sensitive. And they, most people are getting too much salt, not from salt, but from preservatives, which are based on sodium. I love salt. I can't, I can't help it. So long as you are not eating processed food, there is not any limit to the amount of salt you can put on your food because you can't over-salt your food. Yeah, I love I love my food. I love lots of... Put the Himalayan salt on when you're sitting at the table. You put it on the food on your plate, right? 
well, mostly when I cook it, not when I am at the table. It's much, already good. Much yeah. better for your body to put that salt on when you're eating rather than when you're cooking, except for a few exceptions like soups. Uh-huh. And the salt will help draw the minerals out of the vegetables and into the soup broth and make it tastier. Yeah. But in, in most instances, when you put salt in when you're cooking, it now becomes invisible to, to your body. Yeah, yeah, it it gets So yeah. if you put if you just sprinkle that salt on while you're eating, mm-hmm. then you will wind up eating less salt but feel like you're eating more. All right, that's I that's a good idea. Yeah. I also give myself because I too love salt. People look at me. As a matter of fact, when I did a Green Goddess week out in uh, Washington state uh year before last and we all ate together and finally one of the women said, You put salt on everything and when you don't put salt on it, you put umiboshi on it and I said, Mhm. I need a very high salt intake and if I don't get it I am not in the peak of health. Well, I am not in the peak of pleasure. I I, need, I love the salt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. It, and and if and I if I am prevented from using the amount of salt that I need on my food and I don't eat processed food, then I can see that I'm, my my whole organism is not happy. It's not where it needs to be. So I provide myself with good quality tamari. I, I provide myself with umiboshi. I provide myself with yeah. gamazio, which is uh, seaweed and sesame seeds. I provide myself with seaweed as a condiment to sprinkle on food. Yeah. There's a uh, lot of different kinds of salt I can put on my food. Yeah, I put all those you mentioned. I love, I love the yes. And, uh, and yeah. listeners, we're not saying we do it all at once. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I might put tamari and sesame noodles as well as gamazia. I love seaweed. I love seaweed. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think that you're doing um, really, really well. And one of the the things, if you are, if you're going to continue to engage with doctors, one of the things you could say, it's entirely up to you. When the doctor says, if you don't take this this drug, you're going to have a stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say, I'd like to see the PubMed reports on that drug specifically reducing incidence of stroke, and I would like to see that drug compared to a program like Dean Ornish's. Uh-huh. <laughs> they don't even know who the guy is. Well, you know, then, then that's okay if they don't well, know. Yeah. Sitting there going, uh, 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 yeah. you know, and, and now you are in the position of letting them know that that you're not necessarily just going to follow the party line. Yeah, I, I have often talked about being in a cardiologist's office with my sweetheart, and the cardiolo- cardiologist comes in, puts a chart in front of his nose, looks at the chart, speaks to the chart, <laughs> right, literally, and says, well, your numbers are pretty good. Your numbers? What? We're not even looking at the person. We're looking at their numbers. But I'd like to see your cholesterol number lower, so I'm going to up your dose. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that. And remember, you shouldn't eat this, and you shouldn't eat that, and you shouldn't eat the other thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I wait, you know, a sufficient amount of time uh, to see if there's anything further the man is going to say, and he doesn't. And I say to him, you just recommended that he not eat red meat and full-fat milk and eggs because they're sources of cholesterol. But food sources of cholesterol do not increase the body's cholesterol. In fact, uh, what we have found is that... um, monosaturated um, and saturated fats um, in the diet uh, 
um, have far more effect whether or not they have cholesterol. And um, I'm I'm wondering why you haven't told him to avoid bad fats. And he pulls his nose up out of the chart, and he looks at me and says, it's not on my protocol. I could get fired if I say that. (laughs) Again, a very honest answer, right? Yes, yes, yeah. Yes, I know that, but I'm not allowed to say it. And when we understand that doctors are not allowed to tell us how to be healthy, then we begin to understand, as you are, that it's our responsibility. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. You are welcome. Thank you for calling. Green blessings. Green blessings to you, too. Good night. The next caller is coming from the 602 area code. Hi, Susan. Good evening. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for talking with me and for all your good work. I really appreciate you, and I have a lot of respect for your research and your experience. So I am curious to know your thoughts on vaccines Uh, Do you feel that they're effective? Do you feel that they're necessary? I know there's a really hot debate about this right now. So let let me talk through that my personal experience, okay? Okay. Because it's my experience, and so I can talk about it. Mm -hmm. When I was a child, there were children my age who suddenly weren't at school anymore. Because they Mm -hmm. had polio, and they would never walk or run again. And so when someone came to our grade school and says, we are looking for children to be polio pioneers, and we want these children to take polio vaccine in a number of different forms so that we can decide what the best form is, I immediately raised my hand. I said, I want to be a polio pioneer over the next I was given polio vaccine live. I was given polio vaccine dead. I was given it orally. I was given it by injection. I was given it by one big injection, by several injections. They tried out a lot of different ways. How many children do you know right now who have polio? None. I guess the polio vaccine worked. So you think it was the vaccine that worked? Of course it is. What? (laughs) Polio did not just disappear. How many people do you know who have smallpox? None. How many people do you know who have scarring from smallpox? None. I guess the smallpox vaccine worked, yes? (sighs) Yeah. But then, you know, you cogent comment that I have seen about this is that the success of vaccines has been their downfall. Because you see, I'm old enough to have seen children die of these things. I am old enough to see children's lives wrecked from these diseases. And I saw these diseases pushed back into obscurity through the use of vaccines so that now people think the vaccines didn't work because the diseases are now gone? Now, it's a very obviously fraught 
thing, and I would no more debate it with anybody than I would debate whether or not the Earth is flat or round or whether or not we actually landed on the moon. Because it's pointless. If somebody believes the Earth is flat, which is just obviously enormously wrong, nonetheless, they believe it, and nothing I say will cause them to not believe it. No picture I show them, nothing is going to cause them to change their mind. And if somebody truly believes the whole moon landing was faked, nothing I can show them will cause them to change their mind. Because that's their belief. And they're going to believe that there's a conspiracy, and they're going to believe that they are being duped, and they're going to believe that the vast majority of humans on this planet are out to do them evil. That's called paranoia. Well, and I don't go I along think... with paranoia. I go along with pronoia. I actually believe the vast majority of human beings on this planet are helpful, kind, and considerate and want to help other people. I know the people right. who asked me if I'd be a polio pioneer didn't hate children. They wanted to get rid of polio like I did, too. And we did it. We oh, did yeah, it. and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. I think what I'm seeing is, you know, there are lots of mothers whose children have suffered injuries as a result there of are receiving not the vaccine. Sorry, that's just not true. There are not lots. Lots means more than 50%. Sure. So, yeah, I just, I feel How like. How many mothers of, do you personally know whose children have been severely injured myself. vaccination? I do know one myself. Uh-huh. And what happened yeah. to her child? He has, he's sick all the time, and he has sick in all what kinds way? of. Sick in what way? Like he has. He has constant ear infections. He's got all Many kinds of children sensory. have constant ear infections. It has nothing to do with immunizations. No. No. Well, ear infections just, is you know, probably one of the most common childhood complaints. The eustachian tube in an adult drains through gravity in the child's face. The eustachian tube is almost parallel to the ground, so it doesn't drain well, so infection can build up there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to do, nothing at all with any kind of vaccination or immunization. Again, one of the reasons that I value science is that science helps me understand that birds singing do not cause the sun to rise. Right. Even and though everywhere I have ever been, anywhere in the world, what happens before the sun rises is birds sing, yes? Yes. In all circumstances, <laughs> birds sing before the sun rises. Therefore, what causes the sun to rise is birds singing, yes? Yes. No. Birds singing do not cause the sun to rise. The sun rises because the earth is turning. Hello. Yeah, I'm. my thoughts are a little bit jumbled at the moment. I just, you know what's really Most troubling people to me, who are thinking about I, vaccinations and immunizations, I'm sorry, would have to say the same thing, that their thoughts are pretty jumbled up. 
They don't follow a clear and consistent path. They indulge themselves in all kinds of things like believing that something that comes before something else is causative, which in the vast majority of cases it is not. So what about the situation? You stand here and tell me that lots of children have been injured when you don't know any? Well, I have seen mother's stories that they share, you know, and now that we are able to are connect with each other. Necessarily validated in any way. Birds singing caused the sun to rise. Anybody can say anything. We didn't land on the moon. The earth is flat. So what about the situation in Texas where there was a whooping cough outbreak in a school where every child was vaccinated? If the vaccine works, then wouldn't they be protected? No. That's not the point of it. That is not the point of it at all. The point of it is to be able to get over it without dying. Vaccines are active against viruses. The immune system Mm -hmm. has two branches, a branch that deals with bacterial infections and a branch that deals with viral infections. I'm simplifying. The part that deals with bacterial infections is called innate. It knows what to do, and it gets cues from the bacteria in the mother's vagina, the bacteria on the mother's skin. The bacterial system, part of our immune system, is pretty good. And it's, you know, bacteria, you send out white blood cells, and bam, you kill them. The viral part of the immune system doesn't have a clue. And it literally has to be trained, virus by virus by virus. Every time our bodies apprehend a unique virus, then we have the possibility of dying from that virus. That's what's happening in China, isn't it? 85 people now dead. Six cases already in the United States from people who visited that part of China. They're being taken care of, so they're not dead. But every unique virus can kill us and can kill us quite quickly. I was once in a group with a virologist, and the question came up, how long does it take your body to recognize a virus, figure out how to destroy it, and do that? And the virologist said, usually about two weeks more than you get to live after the virus kills you. In other words, in the vast majority of cases, viral infections can be lethal. Immunizations prevent them from being lethal. Okay. Well, I'm really glad to hear your thoughts on this. And, um, you know, I've been really troubled by the divide on this. I feel like people are really going after each other in a nasty way. And I feel like if we can just come together and be scientific and honest, with each other, maybe we can have a better conversation. So, it's certainly a good prayer. I certainly support you in it, but it's not my experience. As I said at the beginning, I would not argue about vaccinations with someone who has their mind made up because it won't do anybody any good. They are utterly and totally convinced that there's a conspiracy out to harm them, and I'm not. Because that's not my experience of human beings. I do not know Mm -hmm. human beings to be able to get together in groups in which everyone in the group agrees, and they not only agree, they agree never to say anything about what went on, 
we had all of those thousands of people faking the moon landing, and they all agreed never to break their silence? Come on! That's not human behavior, is it? Well, I guess, you know, seeing the censorship that's happening online kind of makes me feel like, why can't we all just be completely honest about what's happening? You know, well, why would anything... I'm not sure that you would want to be the focus of the honesty of someone who hates women. Would you really want to be the focus of that? If their honest opinion is that women are absolutely worthless and should make coffee and bear children, would you really like to hear that? That's their truth. I don't see what that has to do with this. That's their truth. Right. About everybody being able to tell the truth. I'm telling you the Internet is already too filled with people's ids. And if you don't know what an id is, go back and check out Freud. And the id is usually the nastiest part of you. You think the ego is bad? The id is a thousand times worse. And the Internet is just basically the id playground. I don't do that. I don't even go there. It's nasty. It's ugly. You know, I'm for the people who pull the plug on it. No Twitter. You know, none mm-hmm. of that stuff. No Facebook. No. None of that. What's <laughs> in your Facebook? I'm actually not. I hire people to do that. I'm not going there. It's not, I hear you. not healthy. And I do not read any news ever online. Again, it's not healthy. And censorship? Personally, I don't think there's enough censorship on the Internet. Really? I think that hate sites should not be allowed to exist. I don't think you really want a site on an Internet that tells you how to carve up a woman. Hmm. You really want a site on an internet that tells you how to go shoot up a school? You want that? I don't. That's a good point. I don't. I would like to see hate censored. Yes, I would. This is too much of it in the world, and people are too quick to believe it. Make a break with paranoia. Set yourself on the path of pronoia. It's more difficult <laughs> to believe that people are out to do you good than to believe that people are out to do you bad. But since both paranoia and pronoia are defined as the unsubstantiated belief that people are out to do you bad, good, you your choice, hey, it's okay. It's uns- unsubstantiated. If I want to look out for all the good people are doing for me, guess what I'm going to see? Mm-hmm. And if I want to look out for where people are going to do me in, guess what I'm going to see? It's my choice. So I make a vote for pronoia. <laughs> do not believe that people engage in conspiracies. And every conspiracy that has been thoroughly checked has come up completely empty-handed. The English government, after saying no for quite a long time, finally put millions of pounds into an investigation of Diana's death. And what they found that was the driver screwed up. There's no conspiracy. Scientific American actually had an article on why do people believe in conspiracies? 
And they actually did some investigation and did some studies and tried to figure out what is this. And what they realized was, it's somewhat a theme tonight, people feel safer and more secure if they think there is a conspiracy that's out to get them. Hmm. Right? That's interesting. Yeah, because if there's conspiracy, mm-hmm. that that means that m- mommy daddy is in charge. And so we can just go back mm-hmm. to being a child and we don't have to worry about anything. If there's a, a conspiracy, we don't have to be functioning adults who make hard decisions for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you are going to vaccinate and which vaccinations you're going to get is a deeply personal decision. Yeah. I would not suggest that anyone take my advice for their life or their children, but you know there is a growing movement of children who are turning 18 who are going out and getting all their immunizations and really laying some pretty heavy resentment on their parents for not protecting them. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. <laughs> well, thank you. I I appreciate you sharing your thoughts with me. And, uh, More my experiences than than my thoughts, because I can tell you absolutely yeah. what experiences are. And what you I have, have seen and experienced in my life, you. and I can also tell you that I have taught in communities where no one immunizes, and I have seen babies die from preventable causes. Really? You bet. Hmm. So you would say for sure that the the advantages outweigh the risks when it comes to vaccination? I think it's a very deeply individual choice. Right. Right, right. But I do not believe in conspiracies. I don't don't believe there's any vaccine conspiracy. And I do believe that the earth is round and that it rotates. And that um, although we didn't do anything afterwards, we actually did put people on the moon. <laughs> Thanks for your call. Green blessings. Thank Good you, night. Susan. Green blessings. Good night. Hey, hey, Looks like we have time back. for what? One, one or two more, maybe. Yeah, and we have a whole string of callers. So if we don't get to you this week, please do call in next week. And our next caller is coming from one nine area code. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have a question because it's been coming up um, in several people around me. I just wanted to hear more about how and why we get kidney stones and how to prevent them. I just spent a week with my husband's uncle, and he is having kidney stone surgery, and he was telling me everything that the doctors told him. Um, particularly like what foods to avoid, like foods high in oxalate. And I was, it made me really curious about your take on that. And um, yeah, just wanted to learn more about kidney stones and 
how not to get them. <laughs> kidney stones tend to run in families. So the best way to not get them is not be part of a family that gets kidney stones. <laughs> That's easy for me. I don't think any of my family has had them. <laughs> there you go. So you have nothing to worry about. They really, okay, cool. they really, it's a strong, strongly inheritable thing. So let's just backtrack a little bit here. Chemistry, basic chemistry means that we are talking about acids and alkalis. Or alkalis are sometimes called bases, right? Acids and bases. Mm -hmm. So any chemistry needs to have both acids and bases. Our body is chemistry set. So we have acidic components in our chemistry, and we have basic components in our chemistry set. The primary acid that's used in chemistry in most mammals is ascorbic acid, vitamin C. Mm -hmm. And so the vast majority of animals make quite a bit of vitamin C because they're using it for their body chemistry and gets used Mm -hmm. up. Humans do not make any vitamin C. It's a limiting nutrient. We have to get it from our diet. And, of course, the lack of it causes scurvy, which in prior generations was the equivalent of AIDS because it broke down your immune system and then you died from something else. Mm. So humans, some, quite some time back, um, decided we weren't going to do body chemistry with ascorbic acid. We were going to do body chemistry with different acids. And what that means is that those different acids can trigger the formation of kidney stones. Now, avoiding oxalic acid sounds real good. It sounds real good because there's a severely limited number of plants that contain that. And then you just eliminate those plants, and you've eliminated oxalic acid. And whew, But almost every plant contains some kind of acid. Mm-hmm, right. Fruit is incredibly rich in a variety of acids. And all acids can trigger the production of kidney stones. Mm. Taking calcium supplements is definitely a cause of kidney stones. Not eating any acid has never been shown to prevent or delay the formation of kidney stones. Mm -hmm. So our primary acid that we use is uric acid. I love you, Susan. And uric acid can build up in the tissues if it's not used well enough in body chemistry and cause gout and inflammation and other painful conditions. So the people who look at evolutionary human things say that kidney stones are just a little glitch because we made this change. So far as I know, oxalic acid is completely destroyed by heat. Mm -hmm. Spinach contains like acid, raw. Cooked spinach doesn't. Beet green uh-huh. acid raw, but not cooked. Okay. Okay. That's what I kind of thought, and that's what I told him. 
I was like, I think that those things are, but they, the doctors don't tell him that. Yeah. The doctors don't know. Again, right. they just have a little cheat sheet that says don't eat foods with genoxalic acid. They don't even know what those foods are unless it's on their list. Uh-huh, yeah. Right, and in traditional cultures that eat foods that are rich in oxalic acid, because lamb's quarter, a, mm. a wild green which is used all over the world, is quite high in oxalic acid, and spinach, which is used all over the world, and when those greens are used, they're always paired with a dairy product. Mm-hmm. Because the calcium in the dairy product binds with the oxalic acid. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about it binding in your body. You already did it. In Germany, whenever they cook Swiss chard, which also contains oxalic acid, they always cook it in milk. Mm-hmm. So those are pretty, you know, think of Greek spinacopita, spinach and cheese. Yeah. So except for not taking calcium supplements and except for being active physically we don't really have a lot that we can definitively say about the formation of kidney stones various things seem to trigger them in various family lines so what you might say for one family avoid this might not even work for somebody else's and I'm always a little loathe to, or a lot loathe, to put restrictions on anybody's diet. So I would say to someone, are you someone who eats a lot of raw spinach? Mm-hmm. If you are and you have kidney stones, you might want to reconsider that choice. <laughs> and eat your spinach cooked. Yeah. Are you from a family line that has kidney stones? Check out the connection between calcium supplements and kidney stones and see whether or not you want to risk it. But you get a lot more calcium from your nourishing herbal infusions than you can from any pill. So that's what I would say. And they're a drag and they're horribly painful. And if a kidney stone gets lodged in the tube that goes from the kidneys to the bladder, it can shut down the kidney. And it can be hard for you to know that because the kidneys don't have nerve endings. Good girl. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's actually quite possible. It doesn't happen very often, but it is possible to die from kidney stones. There's kidney stones in both kidneys, and both ureters are blocked, and both kidneys fail, then you could die. Again, it's a rarity, but it is Mm. certainly a possibility. And at the very least... Kidney stones, if they are being passed, are incredibly painful to pass. However, if you have kidney stones in your kidneys, it's not causing any pain or any difficulty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I experienced when I do. <laughs> you had kidney stones? I have a lot more experience than I do. No, I don't. Just, just who's, my... Who's saying, who's saying my experience? Is that Rebecca? I think that there's something, somebody else on the line. It's weird. It's not me. I keep hearing somebody cutting into, and it's not from my. Oh, well, a couple um, of the callers became unmuted. Sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> How that happened? 
<laughs> oh, and I think that our um, our guest is here as well, Susan. Great. Well, that's so super helpful. I just was really curious about all of that, so that gave me lots of interesting information. Thank you, Susan. Oh my goodness, what happened here? Where is she? To give parents meaningful advice. Dr. Jones trained as a physician at Cornell Medical College. She completed her surgical training at the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard Medical School. She's listed as one of America's top doctors as a clinical associate professor at Weill Cornell Medical College and a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Surgeons. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jacqueline Jones. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited. You wrote a book called Medical Parenting, How to Navigate Health, Wellness, and the Medical System for You and Your Child. Could you tell us about that? Absolutely. You know, as a practicing physician, I do pediatric ear, nose, and throat. I found that more and more parents were becoming overwhelmed with the amount of information and choices that they have. You know, the Internet is a wonderful thing, but I also think it's a curse in one way because people get so much information that's unfiltered that sometimes it's really hard to use that information in a really effective fashion. So that's what I I sort of focus this book on is how do you take the information that's out there plus your common sense and be the best possible advocate that you can for your child? Not always easy, especially with the proliferation of shoving children into MRIs and CAT scans. So true, so true. You know, you know, just uh, and then we get these MRIs and we cats and CAT scans, and we don't know what to do with all the information. I mean, some of these things are are things that just don't need to be looked at, but once you find them, you have to go down that path of looking at them. So. Yes, I think there is an overall. So it's not just the internet, and it's not just parents. It's doctors who push them into these tests that are very unhealthy. I mean, I'm talking about. I I met an eight-year-old girl who fell and broke her arm. It was a simple break, and they put her in a CAT scan. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Right. I'm like, what? Right, and her mother said, well, the pediatrician says, that's just normal procedure now. We don't just do an x-ray, we do a CAT scan. I'm like, holy mcgullies. Cat well, in some cost- situations, a CAT scan is less radiation than an x-ray. I'm sorry? So it depends. In some situations, a CAT scan is less radiation than an x-ray. In what situation would that be? That's certainly (laughs) nothing that my research has turned up anywhere at all. Well, in in what I do in otolaryngology, um, the old way of looking at the sinuses was we would do four or five x-rays. And now with the computerized CAT scans, we can do less x-rays and get more information. So, again, you know, but I think that the problem is is like... I'm quoting here. CAT scans... Truly scary x-rays. An abdominal CAT scan causes 13 cancer deaths per 10,000 people exposed to a single examination. Wow. More than 85 million CAT scans are done yearly in the U.S. as of 2017. The National Cancer Institute estimates that 30,000 
of the one and a half million cancers diagnosed that year were caused by CT scans. Wow. Gee, that's a, that's a, that's quite a it's, number, but I'm not a radiologist, so I'm not going to comment It's from Consumer Reports. Here's an estimate that 2% of all future cancers are going to come from CT scans alone, and this threat is greatest for children. So I'm sorry, I'm going to argue you that CT scans use a lot more radiation than x-rays, and even a single CT scan is far worse than a dozen x-rays. You know, and that's something that I talk about a little bit in my book, Medical Parenting, is, you know, being an advocate for your child. And one of the chapters that we talk about x-rays in is dental x-rays. Because, you know, I think that's another area where x-rays can be overused. And as a parent, it's really important to go in and have that conversation with your, your doctor. And, you know, that's a really important point that you bring up, Susan, is that as consumers, we really need to be advocates both for ourselves and our children and to ask questions and to make sure that, that we and ourselves are getting and our kids are getting the best possible care that's out there. So I do spend a lot of time in my book and talking about that and how to develop that relationship with your physician so that you can talk through these really uh, difficult situations and make sure that both of you feel that, that the tests that you're doing are really appropriate and are going to get the most amount of information with the least amount of exposure to, to radiation and tests. Exactly. So great point. I don't know, you know, where you live, but at this point, so far as what I hear in New York State, you can't find a dentist who won't force you to do x-rays on their schedule. I have found one, but it took a while, and we had to come to an understanding. Well, you know, I'm in New York City, so we have a lot of more options than you do. I don't know where you are, Susan, but um, here in New York City, there, there's... No, upstate. Uh, New York State, yeah, there's a lot more options here in New York City for a holistic dentist who, who are a little less willing to, to do x-rays. So, again, that's another thing that I mentioned in my book. You know, a lot, a lot of times, sometimes you're, you're stuck in where you live with your access to medical care. You know, here in New York City, as far as choosing a pediatrician, there's probably, you know, two pediatricians per block where, you know, if you're in a smaller town in upstate, it may be only one or two in your town. Or your county. Yeah, or your county. Yeah, so it makes it much harder. Um, but that's where you have to decide. Is it worthwhile to travel if you can? Right. Or is it worthwhile to say, as every parent learns, this is not the fight I'm going to fight. Yeah, what I'm going to do is there are important fights. The dentistry is certainly one of the foundations for good health, and it's one of the reasons that our generation is so long-lived, because our parents took us for preventative dentistry. Thank you. Thank you to all of our parents. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. But even 60 years ago, a person of my age wouldn't have had any teeth left. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Really, that, you know, the modern dentistry is, is absolutely amazing, and, and sometimes, you know, not really regarded with the with the high regard that it should be. And so there's a lot of things you can do to protect yourself against the fairly small amount of radiation from dental x-rays. Right. Yes. That is true. And I do go into detail um, on those things that you can use to protect yourself from radiation, from tests, or from radiation therapy in my new book, Abundantly Well. So 
when in your book is is it divided into chapters and what are what are the chapters about? Yeah, so it is divided into chapters. So I start early on in parenting, how to choose a pediatrician, and I go on to talk a little bit about again the things that if you talked about, you know, as far as choosing a dentist, nutrition, you know, what if your child gets a chronic illness? How do you deal with that? And building your health care team. Um, and I, I try to go through adolescence. You know, I, I don't know if you have children, but we all know little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. And, and my final chapter is uh, learning how to let go as your child, you know, grows up and how to take care of yourself, which is so important. You know, when we get on the airplane, we all ignore those those warning signs that they give. But, you know, it really is important to take care of yourself first. Put your oxygen mask on before you help others. <laughs> I have a daughter. She's 54. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Been there, done it. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Well, that's yeah. that's really exciting that you include all the way up through adolescence because that's a part that is, in my experience, frequently missing from the kind of book that parents would pick up. You know, it's kind of like the baby pictures, right? You got a lot of baby pictures in the first year, not so many in the second year, and by the time they're 10, you can hardly find one. (laughs) That's so true. So often books, you know, just kind of slide over what, in fact, for many children um, is a difficult passage, that passage of adolescence. And they make it difficult for us, too. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, it really is such an important time in their lives. You know, um, being there for them and learning how to interact with them on their terms really can be difficult as a parent. And, you know, I was in the office yesterday, you know, seeing patients, and I saw six 11th graders, you know, I I saw maybe 30 patients yesterday, six 11th graders, all with stress-related illnesses. And that speaks so much to the amount of stress these poor kids are under at this age. And, you know, a lot of the stress is external, but a lot of that stress is also internal. The amount of stress that they put on themselves to succeed is, is just, it's crazy. Adolescence is difficult. It is very yeah. difficult because on one hand, we really like being kids. <laughs> some of us, you know, never leave that behind. We're always looking for some mommy, daddy to take care of us. And who could blame them, you know? Yeah. And on the other hand, in my experience, kids exit the womb going, my way. <laughs> so true. Right? And it, it's not yes. like you have to teach your child to be assertive. Your kid is already assertive. It's and so your there. kid wants to grow up and wants to be an adult and wants to have all that responsibilities at the same time that they really want you to do everything for them. I know. And that's a hard thing as a parent to learn how to let go and let them grow up you know again I had a, a young man who was 24 years old and he came into the to the exam room with his mom and his mom was giving the whole history and his mom was answering all the questions and I was just surprised at both of them because I think at 24 it's important for a parent to take a step back and let your child grow into that that 
adulthood into taking responsibility for themselves. And it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to watch. Parents it is. Like My that. parents it's were really, really intense about creating children who were self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. And toward that end, when each one of us turned 13, instead of being given a weekly allowance, we were given a yearly allowance. And that yearly allowance was to cover our clothing, our shoes, any toiletries we wanted, our school lunches, basically it was our money for the year, and we had to learn how to manage it. Wow, what a great idea. Could you imagine a parent doing that now? It Very would difficult. Be difficult. And my parents had one son and two daughters. I was the eldest, and then a daughter after me. And you could not have, you know, if you were writing a TV script, come up with two young women who treated this yearly allowance any differently than my sister and I did. I said, okay, I have this allowance for 12 months. I divided it by 12. I said, I have this much I can spend per month. I said, I will want to make these big expenses. And I took that off of that total from every week, right? So I brought right. my right what I had to spend. And I would like just parsed it out that way because, hey, I was a mathematics major. What my sister did was <laughs> spend it all immediately and then steal my mom's credit cards. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) What can I say? Two very different ways of dealing with that. Right, right. Yeah. And and you see your own children, how different they can be. And, you know, obviously some of it is parenting. But a lot of it is, as you were saying, it's intrinsic in your kid. It really is. Kids can be so different. And we both made it okay. She's very successful. She's professionally successful. She has plenty of money. It's not a problem. She doesn't have to steal any, her mom's credit cards anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting. So interesting. So um, you started out by talking about the, the, the huge amount of choices that a parent has to make. And one of the kind of first choices that we have to make if we're looking for a healthcare provider is, are we going to um, go to a healthcare provider who works alone? Are we going to go to a healthcare provider who's in a practice? That's different. These are big, yeah, big decisions. And, you know, I think one of the things I try and stress in my book, Medical Parenting, is that you really have to know yourself. What's going to work for you? Because as you had mentioned earlier, there's so many different styles of, of parenting and being a doctor. So you really want to look, what do you need? Do you need someone, a smaller practice where you're going to see the same healthcare provider and really build up that strong relationship with one person? Or is this your third kid where you really got this and you need to go in for your, you know, your yearly checks and that's really about it. Maybe you want a bigger practice. You know, do you, do you live upstate where you are, Susan, where there's only maybe two or three practices available? Or are you in New York City where, you know, there's hundreds of practices available? So all those factors are going to weigh in when you make your decision as to who's right for you. You know, and I say we don't always get married after our first date. So it's important if that pediatrician isn't right for you to find somebody else. You're not tied to that person. And as physicians, we really want to have a good relationship with our patients. We want to find people who, who fit with us. So, you know, if someone leaves the practice, they're not going to be hurt. They really want that patient 99% of the time 
and to be happy and find the right pediatrician. So look around, research, find the person that's going to work for you. I think this is really important what you're saying. We're looking for a pediatrician or a primary care provider, and we say, well, this person looks good. And we go, and then somehow we feel like we've made a commitment. And we have to stick with it, even if we don't like them or we don't feel that this practice is for us. And I think that what you're saying is so vitally important. One of my dear friends a couple of years ago was having some difficulty swallowing. And he kept mentioning this to his primary care practitioner. Um, didn't think that it was very important. And finally, he just went to somebody else who diagnosed him with um, esophageal cancer. Oh, goodness. Well, that's, that's when it's really important if, you know, if you don't feel you're being listened to. I, I think that's one of the hardest things I find as a patient, and I know that other people find, is when you don't have a physician who's listening to what you're saying. Because this really is a relationship. You know, we as doctors need to listen to what our patients say because that's, that's going to give us so many clues to figure out what's wrong. Um, so if you find the person isn't listening to you, find somebody else. It's okay. You are not going to hurt that person's feeling by leaving their right. practice. And it's right. your life that's at stake here. Absolutely. Absolutely. If- friend had not gone to somebody else, he would be dead now. Right. Literally. Right. We're yep. not, you know, you and I are not overstating it. I know that people are listening to us and saying, oh, well, it's not really like, but we, no, we're not. We're not overstating it. You need to be with somebody who's paying attention to you, who's listening to you, who's making your concerns, their concerns, or you need to go somewhere else. You need to get over it. Be bad if you think it's being bad. Be rude if you think it's being rude. And find somebody else. Yes, absolutely. You know, and, and it doesn't, as your child grows, you know, I'm sure you've found that their personality changes. And I found that in my pediatric practice that my boys switch from one practitioner to the other as they got older. And then they transition out of, you know, a pediatric practice to, to find, you know, adolescent doctors and then family care providers. So again, you're not wedded to that one doctor, even if it's just style, you know, maybe that you like them, but you want to find someone who's better fits your style. You can switch to another doctor, even in that practice. Again, for you, Susan, there may be only two or three practices, but probably each one of those practices will have seven or eight doctors. So even trying another doctor in the practice is fine. That's okay. This is such important work that you're doing and such important information that you're sharing with us. I'm sure that people want to know how to get your book and perhaps even how to get in touch with you. Can you help us with that? Absolutely. So my book is available on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble's website, at Books A Million, and it's uh, available in Barnes & Noble stores. You can visit my website, medicalparenting.com, and you can order the book there and that gives you a link to contact me and also gives you a link to visit my uh, my medical website i'm based in new york city as well as in brooklyn and i enjoy having uh, patients join my family of patients 
All right. That is great. So medicalparenting.com and look for that book in all the usual places. Um, oh, you've given me such good questions. I, I have a hard time choosing what is the best next question to ask you. <laughs> what constitutes an emergency? Well, you, you know, that's something that, as you know, when you have your first child, every hiccup or burp or change in the color of their, their poop is an emergency. So that's where I find it's really important for those first couple of visits for both you and your partner to go and develop that relationship with your primary care physician's office um, so that you get to know the secretary, so you get to know the pediatrician or family medicine doctor, and together you can decide what constitutes an emergency. And, you know, it's important to talk to your primary care provider about what you do in emergency, who you call. You know, if your pediatrician's office or your family medicine doctor's office is closed, there's a lot of urgent care centers. Where do they suggest that you go? If you need to, God forbid, you know, go to the hospital, what hospital do they recommend? And, you know, have them help you through getting a, and I talk about it in this book, getting a, a, the numbers together for poison control, for, you know, who you call an emergency, for, you know, who's their covering doctor. All those things should be put in your phone and on the refrigerator and with your babysitters or nannies so that everybody knows what to do in an emergency. Very important advice because as somebody once said to me, the nature of an emergency is that it happens without warning. Exactly. And and you're flustered and it's your, your child and it's, you know, all those emotions flood in. So you right. want you want you to be to, ready. Yeah. You need to be ready beforehand. You need to have what you what you need. And I also suggest that you have the numbers of trusted people that you can call and it doesn't have to be people in the medical system. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Other parents sometimes well, are much yeah. better than calling somebody in the medical system because Let's face it, somebody in the medical system is most likely to say, well, you, maybe you should go to the emergency room, whereas another parent is probably going to say, oh, yeah, that happened to four of my five kids. Absolutely. What will we do without our friends? They're such great resources. And I think it's important to, to pick one or two friends and ask them if, if they'll be your emergency contact. I mean, I do it for my friends, and they do it for me. And, and my friends are there for me when I need them, and I know – you know, your friends and your listeners' friends will be there, too. Oh, Dr. Jacqueline, that's beautiful. Because Thank we know the you. building community is healthy. Absolutely. Healthy for all of us. It's healthy for our kids, and yeah. it's healthy for us. And the way we build community is by asking people for help. You know, one of the things that, that I stress in my book, you know, is taking care of yourself and how important it is to maintain those friendships. Um, you know, when we were single and when we were first married, our relationships with our friends is so much different than relationships with our friends after we have children. And that's where what you were talking about, friends, building that community. You know, it's really important to have a great relationship with your partner and with your spouse 
And, you know, it's important to take time to spend time together. And, you know, maybe you don't want to hire a babysitter every week. Maybe you can talk to your friends and, you know, find a time where they'll take your kids so you can go out on that date night and you'll take their kids one night and you know, they can go out on their date night so that you can develop that relationship with their partner so that you can really be good parents together. Because parenting is a team effort in the best case scenario. That was another theme of my parents, and they said to us repeatedly, we want you to understand that our relationship is first and foremost with each other and then secondarily with you, because after you grow up and go away, we are still going to be relating to each other. (laughs) Such an important point. Oh, my goodness. Such an important point. Keep that relationship going because your children are going to leave, and then you turn around to that person and say, I don't even know you anymore. Right. Um, yeah. And they took, you know, they went off on vacation for two or three weeks every year without the kids. Yeah, it's so important. One of the quote, one of the quotes I have in my book is, the amount of money that you spend on a babysitter is going to be far less money than the amount you spend on a divorce lawyer if you don't put some effort into your marriage. I just saw the movie The Marriage, speaking of divorce lawyers. Oh, oh, wasn't that great? The movie, oh my gosh, amazing. <laughs> Oh, you know, Dr. Jacqueline Jones, I could just talk to you forever. I'm really enjoying our conversation. The information that you are giving people is so um, well thought out and heartfelt and responsive to people's varied needs. I can see that you have reached out, um, you know, in a very full-hearted way to anyone who wants to take back a little more control of their own health. It's certainly where you and I very much agree, is that it's your body and it's your health. And the more you put into it, well, the more you're going to get. And the more you just sit back and let somebody else do it, mm, it's not their body. Absolutely. Oh, so important. So I really appreciate you, and I hope that people go to medicalparenting.com to get a copy of the book or to get in touch with you or go to their local bookstore and demand that they carry (laughs) medicalparenting.com. As we've come to the last minute of our show, I'm going to ask you the final question. What would you like to leave in the hearts and the minds of everyone who's listening to you? Oh, thank you so much. You know, I'd like to leave in people's hearts and their minds to trust yourselves, to take responsibility for your health, for your child's health, and to be an advocate and to be a partner with your physician in your child and your health. It's so important. Dr. Jacqueline Jones, the author of Medical Parenting, How to Navigate Health wellness and the medical system for you and your child. Dr. Jones, if you'll make sure that Rebecca, I know you're in touch with Rebecca, if you'll make sure that Rebecca gets your physical address, I will happily send you a copy of my new book, Abundantly Well. I think you'll like it a lot. I I would love to get it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for helping us to support people, strengthen people, and nourish people so that we can all experience an abundance of health. I think that we are all working together in whatever uh, healthcare profession we've chosen uh, for a healthier 
planet and healthier people. Thank you so much. And thank you, thank Rebecca, you. for helping me in my personal goal of restoring herbal medicine as people's medicine. You can bet if I got a chance to sit down and talk with Dr. Jones one-on-one, we'd be talking about herbs. But because because we are talking with all of you, too, I really wanted her to talk about what she wanted to talk about and what she knows. But perhaps someday we'll have an opportunity to do that. Green blessings. Thank you so much, Dr. Jones. And thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Justine. Good night, everybody, and green blessings. Thank you, everyone. Good night. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.